Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to a historic week, not only here in Wisconsin, but in this country. We record Thursday morning. Uh, it is the day after what uh, can only be described as a coup at the uh, Capitol and at, at Congress yesterday. Um, by the time all of you have listened uh, to this, the you're certainly well aware of the broader fact base, but um, wanted to welcome our, our uh, panel who is with us. It is our usual panel, and we're going to get their immediate thoughts. Uh, we'll start with Claire Zauke, who is our healthcare director. Claire, it's good to have you this morning. Thanks, Matt. And our other panelist, as always, Robert Craig, our executive director here at Citizen Action. Robert? Greetings to our, our virtual and our uh, radio, radio audience. So I am going to get it, uh, Claire, I'm going to go to you first just to get your, and from both of you, I just want to give you a, a few minutes just to give your immediate just response uh, to what is, um, it's a shocking, shocking thing we witnessed, but let's just be honest, this is not something that any of us are completely surprised. Um, we started talking about Trump's effort to steal the election in March last year with that Atlantic article. And essentially all of this played out and what we saw yesterday with Trump inciting it in the, uh, with the rally and sending people over was that coming to its, what may not be its conclusion, but certainly was a historic, horrific day yesterday. Claire, please, uh, your, your immediate uh, thoughts and then Robert will go to you. My immediate reaction um, and what, I, what I'll say is my sustained uh, sort of place of being for the last, um, you know, however many hours it's been, I guess it's not been 24 hours yet, um, is, is just being sick to my stomach. And I'm, I'm sick and unsettled for many reasons. And it's hard to separate all of them because just as as chaotic of a of a, of a day was yesterday um, in DC, it, it feels as chaotic in my in my mind and, and in my heart. Um, everything that I'm feeling and all the different reasons I'm feeling them just constantly jumbled up and shuffled and, and moving quickly by my moving quickly between um, all of them. Uh, I I record this podcast. Matt just said in my kitchen, <laughs> and um, hanging behind me on the wall in the kitchen is a replica of um, floor tiles of the U.S. Capitol building that my parents bought and framed for me the summer after I interned in college um, for former Senator Feingold, where I walked the halls of that buildings with um, so, so much reverence, just in awe of their, their beauty and what they meant to this country. So those tiles hang on the wall behind me every day when I record this podcast and are a reminder of what we should always strive to be, even if this country has never fully been as great as, um, you know, what we would like it to be, and what we're working towards. Um, and so I was thinking about those, those tiles, looking at them all the time um, yesterday and today. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so my heart, my heart is, was heavy. It was just so shocking to see images of people sitting in places like the Speaker of the House's chair and the President of the Senate's chair, breaking windows and storming 
a building um, as if it were in enemy territory and not as if it were, you know, one of one of the most important buildings um, in our country. And of course, all of those all of those feelings are are met or surpassed in in intensity when you think about how could this have possibly been happened and the the anger that I feel towards um, the president who who fomented those feelings over the past five years and who called them into action this week and yesterday um, and everybody who enabled him and the law you know quote enforcement officials who failed so dramatically in in their reactions well we'll yeah, get into no, a conversation about white supremacy and, and the role that played in everything later but um yeah absolutely claire we're gonna definitely dive into you know the the white privilege and the white supremacist structure that was on display um robert your immediate thoughts i don't think anyone should be surprised and i'm surprised how many establishment folks are surprised and you know how surprised Mitch McConnell is or how surprised Lindsey Graham says he is etc um as someone who's been myself looking at the rise of the right-wing movement uh, since I was a high school debater and someone who's read about its development and origins it goes at least to the 50s you can argue to the 30s and the the uh, reaction to the new deal uh, they have been systematically building up this kind of hatred and fear and anger and division for their own purposes, uh, for strategic purposes. And it's great that a lot of people are reading great books like Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be Anti-Racist or Isabel Wilkinson's Cast or Lisa Garza's new book uh, or returning to, to uh, you know, Michelle Alexander's uh, The New Jim Crow People should also return to Dog Whistle Politics by Ian Haney Lopez, because this is about how racism is strategic. And Kindy, Dr. Kindy is very good at this on, on this as well. This has been deliberately fomented in the interest of people in power. And so when you see the rats jumping off the ship, which was a number of senators and members of, of Congress, and you see big business interests that have bankrolled this whole movement coming out and calling for the 25th Amendment. Remember, they are reinventing themselves to hold power. Do not give them credit. They see where this is going. And they will achieve that if we don't stop them and if we don't expose it. Mitch McConnell has been part, a huge part of this. The Bible says, we will know ye by thy fruits. This is their fruits. And we got to stop thinking this is a few crazy people who are militias. This is the most powerful people and interest in our country. And they don't, they're not being mentioned as behind fomenting this movement. You see all those horrible ads, all those horrible social media posts, which says United made it so we don't know who's funding it. It is the vast majority of the billionaires who are right wing, actually, not left wing. And the big corporate interests are funding all of this. We knew this when it was more transparent. When you look at who was funding ALEC, it was the major corporations in the country. And so we need to be wise about that. And then we need to be wise about strategy. They are going to simply, remember, slavery became Jim Crow. It simply changed coloration. Jim Crow became the new Jim Crow, right? They will try to adapt like chameleons and hold power. 
And now they will, the, the part of the Republican Party, this is the danger for Biden. Some of the establishment Democrats will think, now we can work with them. No, no, no. They are the same people. They are making a strategic pivot. And so we need to be real about building a, a left movement that is strategic and they can defeat them. It's not just about being right. It's not just about um, saying the right thing on social media. It's about building power to defeat them. And Robert, we are going to talk more about a lot of where you're going on this idea that like, this is a huge opportunity to redefine and actually for the progressive movement to play an important role in making sure what you talked about is a part of the conversation, right? Because it's one thing for folks to jump off and say, oh, we're, we're appalled by the storming of the Congress. But they were, and, and some of them were okay after that, still speaking out on behalf of this awful, ridiculous plan. But many of them, right, were completely behind it all the way up. Uh, including what you're talking about much more broadly, right, Robert, this whole idea, this generations of building up uh, racial uh, hatred uh, for power. And, and I want to dive right in, but Claire, um, wanna, we, we started to have a conversation about, the, you know, race, right? The race is all over this. Um, here in Wisconsin, right, we had the Jacob Blake non-charging uh, this week. And then we have this display of essentially all white folks storming Congress almost unmolested. It's just un anything. Claire? Yeah, this is going to be a long discussion that we have to continue after the break. But the fact that at least, at least two different men who appeared to be white men made it all the way to sitting in the chairs of the Speaker of the House of Representatives and the President of the Senate, that they were able to fit, not just make it into the room, but make it to that seat for a sustained amount of time and into the offices of the Speaker of the House of Representatives without a scratch on them. I mean, that is the, that's got to be the epitome of, of white privilege. But we had a lot more to say on this topic. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to take a break. And the videos were just stunning. The videos inside uh, uh, Congress and what was happening and just how overmatched. <laughs> I mean, some of these individual or a handful of security officers trying to stop completely, uh, you know, mobs who are grabbing stuff. Um, anyways, we're going to talk more about that. We got to take a break, though. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back, to Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking about happened in Congress yesterday, and uh, obviously, as Robert uh, provided in our opening segment, what's quite frankly been going on. Uh, in this country for a long time. Claire mentioned it's been supercharged the last five, six years under Trump. But this division, this division around race uh, that the right and Republicans have used to build power, uh, it was on display yesterday in terms of this white supremacist culture where Claire, before break, uh, pointed out that uh, we had people that were able to get right into into the uh, halls of Congress untouched. And by the way, largely just allowed to walk, leave, leave, you know, without being arrested, without anything. Robert uh, and Claire want to talk more about this, but let's, I want to dive into like how yesterday really does put on display this 
white supremacist culture that we're swimming in. And uh, Robert, also, if it leads to, we did make a statement about that as it relates to the Jacob Blake. And I see this stuff as completely interconnected, Robert. Yes, it's completely interconnected. And it's, there's an opening here, an opening for progress, because a lot of folks who have denied this connection or not talked about it are talking about it now. So it's not only the civil rights leaders, the Black Lives Matter leaders, scholars like Eddie Glaude from uh, Princeton. It's also a whole lot of mainline folks uh, that haven't talked this way before. But it, there are some people thinking this moment is going to be like 9-11. It's going to be seared in public consciousness. I'm not so sure of that. I mean, the Washington establishment is emoting that way because it, they're, they're in D.C., it's a question of what we do with it. There's a really short attention span now. And the way the news cycle works, I'm not saying it'll go away immediately and constantly, but will not lead itself to structural reform. So the question is how we build power and how we strategically move the ball forward as much as we can with this opening. But it's obvious. I don't even need to uh, argue this, both the police being unprepared was a matter of it was being white protesters. So there was an implicit bias. Forget about actual intent, right? There's just that. They just took it less seriously, being unprepared, uh, not calling out all the reinforcements, et cetera. You know darn well if these were African-American, uh, Latino or Muslim uh, or any other or any, any other threatening group that it would have been a totally different preparation, a totally different response once it started happening, and then the engagement would have been different. And that partly can be implicit bias. What people who are born white in this country, not just born here, come here for any amount of time, take on these norms. You're socialized into it. It's implicit. And so they don't feel as threatened by white people as by black people. It's why, as, as Eddie Glaude has been saying this morning on MSNBC, that white men can wield knives and not be shot, and Jacob Blake to be shot seven times. But then in the back, but there is, an, and he wasn't wielding it, he was allegedly holding it, not clear in the video. But the other thing here is, is that some of this is even worse than that. Police associations are very pro-Trump people who will join the police or on that side, and there is well-documented by the FBI interconnections between white supremacist extremists and police departments, and we've taken none of that seriously, but we have major federal officials still calling for, uh, you know, uh, calling Black Lives Matter a peaceful protest movement, a terrorist group, and uh, etc. because the right is still purveying the lie that the violence comes from the left. It comes from the right. We've known that for a long time. The FBI's known it. We're not acting on it. Hopefully this is an opening for that. But in Wisconsin, Josh Caller, Attorney General, said a lot about the concern about the coddling of and the way the, uh, the white supremacists, one of whom murdered two peaceful protesters in Kenosha and the Jacob Blake protest, um, uh, how, how the fraternization. And I, I hope there's going to be a serious Department of Justice in Wisconsin in attorney general investigation into that because it is rampant and we let it pass. Yeah, I would say, um, Robert, building off of what you said, I mean, you, I was going to make the same point that you made to start off with, right? I mean, just the simple, the simple fact that um, somebody or a great number of folks, I don't know how these decisions are made, looked at the gathering of, of Trump supporters of, and said, you know, these are white folks, these aren't an actual threat to us, even though this is the group of people who um, have 
have been using um, their, you know, violent anti-government rhetoric um, publicly for months, if not years, um, and said those folks are not a threat to us. Um, is you know to your point, and I was gonna say the exact same thing. Sort of the epitome of of racist white supremacist bias in in people's minds and people's institutions, um, or in the law enforcement institution. Um, but I would also say, you know, there there have been videos circulating online that that I don't think are fake that show police officers, Capitol police officers, opening barricades and letting folks onto the Capitol grounds, if not into the building itself, and then um, in the halls of the Capitol, um, amidst the the throngs of, uh, of of insurrectionists of of people who illegally stormed the building, taking photos with. Um, selfies with the some Capitol Police officers. And so, and so this is, I think, just really clear evidence that the issue with the United States policing is not an issue of training, because they knew very clearly, police officers knew that they were not supposed to open those gates, and they chose to do it anyway. It's not like they made a a bad reaction because they weren't trained to behave differently. I mean, they made a very clear and conscious decision to open some gates. And it is it is not a matter of um, needing to learn how to de-escalate a situation because they were there were officers on the scene. I don't want to say all the officers, but there were officers on the scenes who, again, made very clear conscious decisions to contribute to escalating and to chose, who chose not to de-escalate or intervene, right? So, so this is not just about, you know, training or officers needing more tools. This is about something, to your point, Robert, being fundamentally broken with the system itself and that that broken thing um, helps attract a many people who um, are not really interested in serving and protecting to the field. Um, and of course, there are lots of videos of police officers in the U.S. Capitol building who are just totally overwhelmed and doing their best to try to keep people from damaging, uh, you know, pieces of, of art, of statues, of trying to, um, you know, protect lawmakers and reporters and civilians and staffers who are in the who are in these rooms and were just so completely overwhelmed, folks who were failed by, by you know, their bosses and people who make institution or who make decisions about um, what type of security the capital needs, but that doesn't that doesn't negate the fact um, that this white supremacist culture and this bad behavior happened that it that it really existed, um, and we saw it play out before our eyes on video. Robert, you get the last uh, last comment on this before we run to break. Yeah, and it's the one one problem with our language because we're always searching for the right language is that terms like structural racism and white supremacy they sound they're abstractions. They don't sound like they're people involved when in fact they're people who created the system. They're people who are maintaining the system, and they're people elected leaders with power who are not unwinding the system. And we need to be, you know, uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi and How to Be an Anti-Racist proposes along these lines. We just call it racist policies, right? Which is interesting. I don't know if that's the right word either, but the idea is to be more concrete and specific and to create agency. In other words, there are people doing this, people not acting. 
And then we're actors as people in a movement. It's our job to try to get people to act and build the power to make them act and also to influence them to act. It's not all brute force or to get people in place through elections that will do that. And so we need to think very carefully about, say, Governor Evers, who has rightly said that he is going to put things on criminal justice reform in his budget, but he's yet to move on his campaign pledge to cut incarceration in half and his proposals around the last, the first, the Jacob Blake shooting before we had the decision not to charge this week were all fine, but they were small ball and piecemeal and they were not structural. And I'm hoping we see from Governor Evers, who was under, who did send out a strong statement around the refusal by the, by the Kenosha District Attorney to charge in the, in the shooting of Jacob Blake, a strong statement. I want to see it in policies, and it's not just about whether he can pass it or not. It's a matter of whether he can tell the public what we should do and give us an opportunity to mobilize around it. If you say, give them warm porridge out there, it won't be clear to the public what even the choice is. Well, and I think looking forward in the next, uh, next segment, we're going to look forward more about what are some of the opportunities, right, that I think as a progressive movement, uh, this moment provides us uh, given what has what we've all laid out here, right, and uh, clearly what uh, the conservative movement has built up, and uh, it has been laid bare and exposed uh, this week, and that means there is opportunity. We're going to talk more about that uh, when we get back. We're Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at Citizen Action. WI.org. We are really fortunate to be joined by a special guest. I am happy to welcome Lauren Jacobs. Lauren is the executive director with the Partnership for Working Families, which is a national network that we are a part of. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for inviting me on. Well, we appreciate you uh, joining us on short notice and coming on. We, I specifically asked you to come on to um, well, one, I want to get your immediate response to, you know, your feelings about what happened uh, yesterday uh, and what's ongoing. But then I'd like us to get into a deeper conversation as like, uh, this is a moment for our movement that, you know, provides opportunity to provide a better world and, you know, maybe have our vision of the world uh, uh, have an opportunity. So Lauren, first of all, just thanks for joining us um, and tell us a little bit about um what what you're thinking today? Wow, what what uh, oh, this has been a month lived in a week um, again, which I think has just been emblematic of um, this sort of period of rapid vitriolic change and events. Um, so how I'm feeling? Um, angry, um, shocked, um, and I think like many of the people listening, like you all here trying to really weave about and really do be rigorous and disciplined about understanding what exactly happened. So we are best prepared to have the response about how progressives move forward and shape the world as we want it to be. Uh, But being really clear about where the right is right now, what this means, what's the, you know, what's their sort of trajectory and how are they realigning and reshifting um, as well. So obviously, Lauren, t- you know, tell us more about your your first thoughts as to what is what are those opportunities? What do you see 
um, playing out that uh, was manifested yesterday? I, in order to get to talking about where I think the opportunities are or where I think the path forward is for our side, I think it's important to understand where I think and what is happening on their side. And it's, um, you know, my perspective on this right now is really informed by like lived experience of having lived through the 80s and 90s in Portland, um, Oregon, where neo-Nazi skinheads, you know, like descended on the region, both folks who grew up there, but then there was an incursion of folks from the Northwest with a goal of saying that they were going to take the entire Pacific Northwest, secede from a union and make a white national ethnic state. And um, as people know, there was a um, Ethiopian immigrant man that was beaten to death um, in Portland at that time. And there was random acts of, not random, there were organized acts of violence against the LGBTQ community, the black community um, repetitively. And, um, and I think it's understanding this as part of that lineage. It's also understanding what happened yesterday as part of the lineage of our two almost 200 years of codified racial terrorism right we first had sort of codes of what was needed to maintain chattel slavery and then that was later succeeded by the structures and systems that were needed to maintain jim crow as sort of a continuance of that system and so you don't just sort of wave a wand and sort of hold hands and say that's over and not um, and not have a sort of sort of reckoning or discussions about how we got there, what we need to do to walk away from it. And so nobody should be surprised that this has that this is where we are, right? These are sort of the um, seeds that have been in the earth for a while and are sprouting again. And so I do think that um, the opportunities for progressives are like we have to be really honest and look at that and really sort of really understand that this is that this tendency this authoritarian impulse this white supremacist authoritarian impulse has been part of who we are as a nation for a while but this is and so in fact it needs to set us up to be prepared to challenge parts of um, the democratic establishment parts of the movement that want to talk about returns to normalcy we have to say what happened yesterday was normalcy for this country right it was, you know, sort of um, revanchist mobs demanding that um, only legal votes be white people's votes, right? And that, because that's really what was at stake was saying these cities that were predominantly black, that in every case were sort of seen as the pathway of overturning, you know, moving Georgia to now, you know, both Senate seats and the presidency. Um, for Biden, and also f again in Pennsylvania, again in Wisconsin with the language around Milwaukee, Michigan with the language around Detroit, that that is actually what's at stake. And so I think in sort of looking at things as they are, it gives us the path to be able to chart what we need to do. And so going back to that experience in Portland, um, how our community in that time drove those forces out of the city and out of the region was through a diverse and vibrant and connected community that took on the right in all of its facets. It took on the neo-Nazi skinheads, but it also took on sort of the Christian right and its moves to make illegal the LG, just living as an LGBTQ person. And it brought together the black community, the churches, the, uh, you know, the 
organizations like the Lebanese Community Project, housing rights groups, right, anti-racist skinheads into coalition with each other to reclaim the city and retain the community. And I think what we saw in Georgia, yes, the two days ago, was sort of the echoes of that, of a multiracial movement that centered around universal care for everyone and sort of the care for everyone to be able to make it through a pandemic like we are together <laughs> and to be housed and fed and cared for. That those, those notes and that, that sort of vision of a world in which um, we're all secure, we're all safe, we're all housed, we're all fed, is really one of the things that's gonna be important in terms of turning the tide away from this and really contesting this. Hey, Lauren, I really appreciate your analysis. That was really rich. Um, I just wonder, I wanna get your reaction. It, it, I've been thinking a lot about this and you know, continue a lot of reading in this area in addition to my own lived experience for a different perspective as a gay white man, um, that there's this tendency to see racism as simply a bias, like explicitly racist statements. And that, and then, there, you know, on social media, the, the, the mainline media, they jump on anyone who does that. But it misses the point that there's always been power behind this, that in fact, the whole idea of race was created by slaveholders in this country so they could exploit the land and exploit the labor. And they've maintained it and they have, they have always found another way to use it as it gets discredited. So it is not just about raising racial consciousness, so that's part of it. But it's also about understanding the power behind it. And there are some folks who use the term uh, racial capitalism comes out of the black liberation movement, and that seems apt. And I want to see your thoughts. I mean, so people don't know Parch Working Families, uh, you, you, I mean, you do a lot of things, but you're particularly well known for serious economic strategies to build power for multiracial groups of working people in cities and to aggregate the power we have in an effective way. And so you obviously spend a lot of time thinking about who benefits from something, who actually holds the power, I don't feel like the business interests and the billionaires behind all of this are getting blame right now. It's just a few awful exploitive politicians like Tim Cruz and Josh Hawley or those yahoos who fortunately were uh, not effective enough to actually take the Capitol or take members of Congress hostage. But next time they could be right. We kind of lucked out in that they were good enough to outwit a bad police response, but they didn't really have a plan. They just rummage through the place, etc. That doesn't necessarily happen next time. But I want to get your sense of the power behind all this, if you agree with that analysis. Oh, yeah, 100%. And I think that, you know, one of the, I think, challenges in the progressive movement on the left has been sort of a lot of this um, interfamily debate about like, well, is it is it race? Is it class? It's both. Um, class is lived through race in the United States. It is in most of the Western, former Western colonial powers. It is how we understand how class is performed. And so um, I do think that there is no way to um, tackle how, how wealth is distributed, how income is distributed in this country. We do not, if we are not explicitly, proudly and loudly anti-racist um, and really anti-fascist. We have to be really clear also about that politic of saying and naming like 
the and naming what we're seeing in terms of a rise of this language on the right. Um, I'm looking to, you know, some actors like political research associates and other to do the sort of unmining of who was involved yesterday, but from the videos and photos, I saw a lot of images that were clear, like deep white nationalist symbols and flags and, you know, Nordic tattoos and all these things that really are sort of pointing to who was also really involved in the um, violent insurrectionist mob yesterday. With that, we are going to take our final break. When we come back, we're going to continue to talk about the power behind what happened yesterday, what played out, uh, and how we as a progressive movement ought to be organizing and having our vision of the world, which uh, Lauren, you did a beautiful job of laying out, right? What we need to do uh, uh, coming forward. But we've got to take a break. Again, you're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are joined by Lauren Jacobs. Lauren is the executive director of the Partnership for Working Families, which is a powerful national network that we are a part of that uh, does amazing work uh, in a number of places throughout the country. And we are talking about what happened yesterday in Congress, but more importantly, what's been really how this played out over long period of time and the powers that are behind that and what we ought to be doing uh, looking forward. Um, Claire, I wanted to give you an opportunity if you had uh, anything you wanted to say or a question uh, for Lauren. Yeah, I also uh, appreciate your um, analysis. And I think where you um, ended your comments is was really powerful. Um, and so I, I think my only question is, you know, where do we where do we go from here and how do we move forward? What advice do you have for us? Thank you, Claire. That's, I mean, I think you know, that is the question that <laughs> all of us need to be wrestling with. So I'm gonna try to do what I think in this moment, but I do think this is a dialogue that progressive organizers, activists, community members need to be having constantly right with each other about where are we and what are the conditions saying about where we need to go i i do think um and robert was talking his question was pointing at this where's the money because um holly <laughs> and cruz are not just sort of you know weren't just sort of nascent community actors that like rose to power on the backs of a mass movement there are like there is a donor class that has sort of really sort of made forward and greased these wheels um we know a lot of it, the dollars are on wall street they're in the fossil fuel industry and a number of sectors of the economy and i do think that that is a real question around the progressive movement really being clear about pointing to naming names and calling out these folks. Like, I, I mean, I'm just floored that the National Manufacturers Association comes out with a statement about the 25th Amendment. I'm like, this dude, <laughs> this is your dude, <laughs> right? What? what? <laughs> like, this happened because of y'all, right? So I do think we have to be very clear about going after um, capital and how it's been organized to sort of foment what we saw happen yesterday. Um, and what has been sort of this um, trajectory of increasingly violence out of parts of the right. Um, and I also think that, you know, pointing again to Georgia, pointing again to what happened around the election, 
pointing again to the sort of community fridges and neighborhoods and pointing again to um, the policy fights that local community groups are having around extending sick days and um, the occupation of campground here in my city of Philadelphia where people, there was a camp right in the middle of downtown that then won the city turning over 50 properties to a community land trust. All those battles about people coming together and fighting for the economy and society that we need to have and naming it as one where care, um, you know, belief in the dignity and, it, and preciousness of each individual um, has to be at the center of what we're doing and it has to be the thing we're articulating. I think the question around the $2,000 checks is leaving, is that, is living into everyone is deserving of care of protection, of food, and of a housing. We have to take care of each other in the middle of a crisis like the pandemic. And I think that is like the, that, and I wanna say that impulse is also very clear in our society. And our work is to grow that, to grow it into a political force that is capable of grabbing the levers of power to be able to reshape society and the economy. Robert. So you've touched on Georgia a couple times, and that huge headline has been buried by, you know, the sedition and the insurrection. Um, I just want your thoughts. I mean, we both know Deborah Scott, who runs Stand Up Georgia, that people as a partial working families affiliate in Georgia, so our colleague. And if you talk to Deb, it's really, it was a movement built. I mean, Stacey Abrams is important, but the national media makes it sound like she registered all the people and she personally did all the turnout. And no one does that, but she, I mean, I was on a radio show with Benjamin Jealous and he did tell me that in his opinion, uh, Stacey actually invested and really worked to help build the movement. So she wasn't one of those folks just standing out there like some elected leaders at all. But I want your sense of, that this was not just we spent a bunch of money and handed and hired a bunch of political consultants and run ran good ads, or even if we had good candidates, though I think we did, I think a movement was built and that we need to spend political money differently in this society, that you need to build a movement in the state if you want to take the state. And Wisconsin, I can tell you, just money is burnt through every cycle that doesn't build anything. And we're always fine to say, no, no, invest it in groups like us because we're building something that stays here. And that was done more in Georgia, it appears to me, but I think you're closer to it. So I want to get your sense. Um, that's absolutely right. Um, Georgia Stand Up and um, a host of other or community-based organizations, both specifically C4 political operations that have been in place that have done voter organizing for years um, and C3 community organizations are really sort of the heroes. And I think Stacy's been clear about saying that. So I also wanna also say like, I, I've heard her speak and that she's been like, no, this wasn't me. There's like a number of organizations that made this possible. And I do think that that's, I think that's critical to understand is that there's not gonna be like a magic bullet organization or network that's gonna come out and be like, we have the plan and this is, follow us, it is the one thing we should have learned from this last cycle is it takes all of us, because that, what we saw in Georgia in terms of 
the number of and really like women and I do think that it's not then an accident that we have this very care-centered message that is feminist and it's like a feminist view of how to govern and what the purpose of you know the state is is for the care of people um I do think that you know that what we saw over in other replicated in other states previously in November was this it was a mosaic of the progressive movement and people being comfortable knowing this is the lane we run in and we do this really well so georgia stand-up runs one of the biggest um, c3 phone banks in the state and does incredible voter education they don't do partisan work right so they're not sort of out saying vote for this person or this but they're informing communities that are structurally prevented and blocked from voting by the likes of the folks that we saw at the state house, the Capitol yesterday, right? It informs those folks, does voter education, and aids people in accessing their ballots, especially returning citizens in the state of Georgia, too. What's even more critical is they're there permanently. They're doing work permanently in the community. They're building leaders. They're investing in the movement. And how do you grow the movement? Because right. we're too small right now. There's That's a reason right. we're not in power, right? There's a reason lots of people, uh, you know, there's still more voters out there. There's still more people who do not feel connected and an opportunity for us yeah. to engage and connect with this movement. And what you talked about, Lauren, this idea that care, we should care for everyone, right? And there's so many people that just feel left out of that. First of all, just want to thank you for taking the time to come on and share your thoughts. It was extremely helpful, but, you know, more broadly, I want to thank you for being permanently invested in trying to think about how do we build this movement uh, through the Partnership for Working Families. And just, you know, you're, you've been doing this work uh, for a number of decades in helping organize and uh, put us in a position. And so really appreciate uh, the work and everybody at the Partnership for Working Families. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all. And I appreciate you all. And I think you've been leaders on really thinking about the cooperative model that you've built about building permanent communities for progressives in the state to be in relationship with each other and to think and strategize and build campaigns together has been really visionary. Well, th thank you so much. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to be a part of the network and uh, we will, we'll talk further down the road. Hopefully we'll have you on this podcast again soon to continue this conversation about how are we building power and building this movement. Robert, before we close, I know uh, you wanted some comments about what uh, Speaker Voss has been up to in our state assembly. Well, right. So we have, we've had this drama where Governor Evers tried to negotiate, uh, then they wouldn't give anything back. So he gave his own compromise and they didn't like that. So now they've come out, uh, Robin Voss, with their COVID relief, uh, mitigation plan, which is really a COVID spread plan. It's sabotage. We have to have liability shields uh, for, uh, from, and, and in fact, you're allowed to, to, to violate federal, state, and local public health standards and be shielded. Uh, we, they don't, they're going to ban employers from requiring COVID vaccinations for employment and the state from requiring vaccinations. Uh, they're going to require state employees to go back to work. They're going to make it much harder for edu teachers and educators and school workers uh, to be virtual. They're going to require two-thirds of a school board in order to do that, in order to, in order to be virtual. And they do nothing to make it safe, nothing whatsoever. They don't even local government anymore have capacity limits over 14 days for like a bar or a restaurant. 
And there's a whole bunch of other stuff here, like letting people visit their their their, their relatives in nursing homes with no safety, no notion of should every should other people sacrifice their loved one because someone comes in unsafely or hasn't been tested. So the whole thing is just gross. It's not a COVID mitigation plan at all. And thank goodness they did not get an override majority. So I know we were all disappointed we didn't make more progress in the legislature. We prevented them from giving an override majority so they cannot do this. But they not only are not doing anything, in other words, they met less than any legislature, in any full-time legislature during the pandemic, they're trying to harm the situation. They're trying to politicize it. Well, with that, we have got to wrap up this podcast we are going to talk we'll, we'll talk more about that in the next week and weeks to come want to remind folks continue to reach out to governor evers about state budget priorities uh we'll have links to that we'll talk more about that going down the road but um hang in there folks we want to thank Warren jacobs from the partnership for working families joining us this week and we'll see you next week battleground wisconsin